You may take your Bibles out. Um, I'm not going to ask you to turn to a specific passage of Scripture as we are going to be topical this morning, but please have your Bibles handy. If you do not have a Bible and would like one, um, I believe, my wife's going to give it a couple more shots, I believe there are some on the back table, my right, your left, and you can feel free to grab one of those this morning. Um, Now, when I write my sermons, you all are familiar, I write them with the intent that uh, you'll be able to see the scriptures up on the screen. Um, That's not probably going to be happening this morning because our projector, um, something's going on with it or the remote or whatnot. So I'm going to, that means I'm going to be slowing down a little bit today, invite you to turn to some passages of scripture with me. Um, Maybe something that, you know, normal pastors would do, um, but I kind of get going and (laughs) don't like to slow down. So I'm going to go outside of myself just a little bit this morning as uh, we have to adapt to not having that projector. And we'll look forward to seeing what the Lord will do. The title of the message is About Water Baptism. This is a a special day for us at Legacy Baptist Church. Uh, We haven't had a baptism here since uh, last year about this time. Oh, no, I guess we had one in, in April as well with um, the Schmidt kids and Donna. Uh, almost forgot about that huge baptism that we had. But we, we do this about twice a year. And I don't always have a message to remind us what water baptism is, but I felt led of the Lord this week to give a message about what baptism is and kind of get us all on the same page about why we do what we do. It's an exciting day as Cameron Lauderd is coming forward and, and he'll, he will be baptized. And it's an exciting time in the life of a church. It affords us an opportunity to remind ourselves what we believe, why we believe it, why we do what we do uh, concerning important doctrines and particularly as we think of baptism, what it reflects, what it teaches us about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it teaches us about our own salvation. And today we're going to consider this, what we call the ordinance of baptism, and walk through why we believe what we believe on it, why we do what we do, and why we don't do what we don't do. And as we do so, we're going to answer four questions this morning. The first question, biblically, what is water baptism? The second question, biblically, what does water baptism represent? The third question, biblically, Why do we water baptize? And then the fourth question, biblically, how should we water baptize? And those are going to be the questions that we seek to answer this morning from the Word of God. So question number one, biblically, what is water baptism? And I'll invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew 3. What is water baptism? Matthew chapter 3. The concept of baptism has a long and storied past. When the New Testament opens, we are quickly introduced to a man whose name is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, and he is baptizing people in the wilderness of Judea. And in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the Bible tells us this, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Let me slow down just for a moment there. Um, John the Baptist, this uh, is not the origins of the Baptist denomination or anything like that. Um, We're we're not Baptists because of of John was a Baptist. Uh, Some people will say that, um, but that's an uneducated um, 
direction that people might go with that. Um, the idea of him being the Baptist may be better described as John the Baptizer. He was described by his character, by a man who was in the wilderness calling those to repentance and calling those to be baptized in preparation for the Messiah's ministry. So he was John the Baptizer. It has nothing to do with the denomination. We call ourselves Baptists. We have reasons why we do so, but, but they're not the same thing in, in any context. So in those days, verse 1, came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Esaias, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their Sins. So the scriptures tell us that John came with a message, and the message was this, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he was giving this message, he came, it says, baptizing those who, through confession of their sins, aligned themselves with this message that John was preaching. And we must be careful to understand here the relationship between the message of repentance and the action of water baptism. The message was one of preparation, that the nation of Israel would be actively preparing themselves for the arrival of their Messiah, that, th that they would be actively aligning their hearts with the message of Messiah, with the expectation of Messiah, and then their baptism was to show publicly that they were a believer in John's message. The baptism was to align themselves publicly with the reality of that which John was preaching, which is, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was calling them to get their lives in order so that they would be ready to receive their Messiah. That when he appeared, they would be ready to accept him because he was coming soon. He was the herald of the Messiah. So the people came forward to be baptized. They came out of Jerusalem into the wilderness of Judea and they came to be baptized of him. And in doing so, they were publicly declaring their faith in John's declaration that the kingdom was at hand and their determination to align themselves with the Messiah that was to come. Now, it's also very important to mention that not everyone who came to be baptized was allowed to be baptized. If you're still there in Matthew 3, look with me at verses 7 through 9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So people have been coming to, to be baptized, to align themselves with Messiah's message. And here come the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, John was a man that was accepted by them. He was a man that was cut in the frame of the Old Testament prophets. He had the, the, the um, leather girdle, the camel's hair. He ate the locusts and honey. He was an ascetic. He was everything like Elijah was. He, was. he was cut from that same mold. And they said, wow, this is a great Old Testament prophet. 
So these Pharisees and Sadducees came and they, they were willing to be a part of John's baptism. As a matter of fact, Jesus would say later, John was a, a shining light and you were willing for a moment to bask in his light, to rest in his light. They did accept John. But these Pharisees and Sadducees, they came to be baptized and John looks at them and his message to these Pharisees was, you are a generation of vipers. You are a bunch of snakes. This is not genuine. You, you, you didn't come with a genuine heart of repentance to align yourself. Here's the problem, Pharisees. You already think you're okay. You think there's nothing wrong with you. You think you deserve what, what Messiah has to offer by default because you've kept the law. He says, first bring forth the fruit of repentance and then, and then come talk to me about baptism. We see clearly that the water baptism itself was not what aligned them with John's message. The water baptism itself was not what aligned them with Messiah. The water baptism was supposed to be a public sign following the fruit that they had already, following a, a demonstration in their lives that they had aligned themselves, that they were indeed repenting, that they were indeed aligning themselves with Messiah and the message of repentance. When the fruit of genuine faith was evidenced, at that point they could come forward and publicly associate themselves with John's message through water baptism. And if we need more evidence than that, that water baptism did not effectively bring them into agreement with John's message, that it was meant to be a public display that they had already agreed with John's message, we need look, look no farther than the fact that Jesus Christ himself the very embodiment of John's message, the Messiah himself also submitted himself to John's baptism. If you continue looking with me in Matthew chapter 3, look at verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. It says, But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? John says, no, 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 Jesus. I need to be baptized of you. I need to align myself with you. And here you are coming to be baptized of me. And notice what Jesus says. Jesus answering said unto him, verse 15, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus comes to be baptized of John. Now, we all know Jesus is God. He had need of nothing spiritually. He didn't have to come and repent necessarily, because he, there was nothing to repent of. He, he didn't need to change his mind on Messiah. He was Messiah. He, he wasn't seeking baptism to give him some sort of spiritual experience or spiritual power. He submitted himself to the baptism because like all others who had done so, he was in agreement with John's message. His life reflected the agreement with John's message. And now he was seeking to publicly identify himself with the message that John was preaching. In other words, Jesus submitting himself to the baptism of John validated that Jesus was in agreement with John, that Jesus was the Messiah, that the message that John was preaching would agree with the message that Jesus Christ was about to preach. 
And so Jesus says, suffer it to fulfill all righteousness that I be baptized of you so that the whole world can see that your message and my message are one. So that the world can see that I agree with you, that, that I indeed am the Messiah. Now as we transition from the ministry of John the Baptist to that of Jesus Christ, we find Jesus preaching the same message of the kingdom of heaven. We find men and women being baptized in the name of Jesus now, not just in the name of John's message. And John 4 verses 1 and 2 tell us, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that uh, uh, Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his Disciples. So Jesus' disciples were now baptizing people in the name of Jesus. Jesus himself never went about baptizing anyone, the scriptures tell us. He never physically baptized people. But his disciples baptized those in his name. So men are baptized as followers of Jesus' message, though Jesus himself baptized no man. And this is all that we find in the Gospels concerning baptism. Following the very early days of Jesus' ministry, we find very little else in the Gospels concerning baptism. It was not, as we see it exemplified thus far, for some spiritual blessing or for some power. It was a means of physically and publicly identifying oneself with the decision that those people who were coming forward for baptism had already made in their hearts. So we've talked about John the Baptist's ministry. We've talked about Jesus' ministry. Now let's talk a little bit about the early church. Please turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is, we might say, the very first day of the New Testament church, the day of Pentecost. And we see baptism will immediately take on an important role in the events of the church. Following the arrival of the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches a message declaring that the signs and the wonders which they had seen on that day, the speaking in tongues and, and um, the, the incredible things that were happening on that day were intended to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that indeed um, Jesus' message was validated by God the Father, and that God was now working through this group of followers of Jesus. That He was transitioning from working through the nation of Israel to working through this spiritual nation that we now call the church. And following Peter's sermon, the Scriptures tell us this in verses 37 and 38. When they heard this, that would be the crowd, the multitudes that were there listening to Peter, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You've just told us that, that there's, there's coming a day of judgment. You've just told us that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You've just told us that there's this transition from the law into to grace through Christ. What do we need to do? And notice what he says, what Peter says in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the Holy Ghost. Wait a minute, Pastor. Here you just told us that baptism is only a public example, only an outward manifestation of something that's already happened inward. 
Pastor, if we read this, it, it gives the idea that baptism is a part of our salvation experience. What's going on here? Well, let's discuss it together. Some very important things to note about these, these verses of Scripture. When you talk to someone who does believe in what we call baptismal regeneration, baptismal regeneration is a, is, is a, a false doctrine which states that if you don't get baptized, then you are not saved. That if you don't get baptized, then you will not go to heaven. Um, when, when people tell me that, I say, well, well, can you tell that to the thief on the cross? Because he was hanging there on that day and Jesus said, I'll be with you in paradise or better yet, you'll be with me in paradise today. And so we do see examples of men who were not baptized. We, we, we don't see a common denominator of baptism, but what do we do with a verse like this? The text is translated here, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And it, it's, it's a fine translation. It's not a wrong translation. But there are some expressions in the Greek that just the nature of the way the Greek language works cannot, the meaning doesn't always carry over properly in the text, even if you give the literal translation of the text. And so while literally repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins is accurate according to the Greek. The phrase, because of the, there's a change here from, in person and number from third person plural to second person singular. Because of this change in person and number, if I were to read this the way that it, it ought to be understood, not the way it ought to be read, let me tell you what this would say. Repent ye all, and each one of you who repents be baptized. That's literally how the Greek would be rendered. What should we do, they ask. Peter says, repent, all of you. Starts out as a second person plural. All of you repent. And then he gets individual, and each of you be baptized. Each of you who repents, then follow that repentance with baptism. And that is what the Greek is saying here. Just like John's baptism, there's a distinction made between the heart alignment with the gospel, which is that concept said here, repentance, and then the act of water baptism. Now, baptism is reflected here as the natural next step in the lives of those who have chosen to accept the invitation of the gospel, which is founded upon the promise of remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost. So as we ask this question, what is water baptism? We find that as, as the custom becomes established in the New Testament church, it maintains the same purpose that it had before in the history of Israel, which was that it would be a visible manifestation following an inward determination that you are going to align yourself with a particular message. In the case of the church, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not presented in Scripture as being required for salvation. Baptism is not presented in Scripture as granting some sort of second blessing or conferring upon us some new spiritual power. And we'll talk more about this in our second point. But there's one more verse that I want to touch on before we get past this first point. And I'll invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. This, this passage here in Acts chapter 2 is one of those important passages where people can misunderstand what the scriptures are trying to tell us about baptism. The other important one is found in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
In 1 Peter 3, um, Peter is using the events surrounding Noah and the worldwide flood, a literal flood that actually happened in history several thousand years ago. And he's using the events surrounding this worldwide flood as a picture of salvation by grace through faith. And Peter writes this in verses 18 through 22. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto, the verse 21 says, even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So Peter here says that the ark was a figure. It was a type of the baptism that saves us. Okay, well, pastor, there you are. Baptism saves us. And I've had people come up and say, just read First Peter 3. Baptism doth save us. But we need to read the whole verse. If we just read that one phrase, we're going to get confused. But if we read the whole verse, notice what he says. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. When my daughters are messy and I want them clean, my strategy is to put them in a bathtub. When I put them in a bathtub, they are surrounded by water and that water washes away the filth of their flesh. My wife and I were both uh, working on the car this week and our hands got deep grease on them. I can still, I couldn't get it off from under my fingernails. It's still there. But how did we get it off? Well, we immersed our hands in water and used various manner of degreasers and tried to wash away the filth of the flesh. Now, Peter is saying here, baptism saves us, but not the washing away of the filth of the flesh. Not being dipped in water and being brought back up. But what? He says, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. When we align ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we can answer toward God in a good conscience, then the scripture tells us something happens there and we call that Holy Spirit baptism. Far from water baptism, Holy Spirit baptism, we talked about it just a few weeks ago, is that term to describe the moment when a person believes the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit literally indwells them. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Something happens when you get saved. Jesus Christ told uh, in the Old Testament, excuse me, God, the Lord told, told the nation of Israel that there was coming a day where He would remove their heart of stone and He would give them a new heart a heart of flesh. And anybody who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, particularly those of you who accepted Jesus at a later, you know, say teenage years and above, you can testify to that idea of, of receiving a new heart. 
Your, your desires change. Your ambitions change. Your view of the world changes. Um, quite regularly, people say it's like blinders fell off their eyes. All of a sudden, they saw the world differently. The things that, that didn't make sense or that they thought one thing, now they think another. Everything is different now. Your worldview changes. You are made a new creation in Christ. Your conscience begins to prick you over sin where it didn't prick you over sin before. You have a desire to serve the Lord where you didn't have that desire before. You have a capacity to serve the Lord that you never had before in your life. And this is what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit indwells you and gives you the capacity now to be disconnected from the power of sin and to be connected to His power to bear the fruit of righteousness in you. We call that the Holy Spirit baptism and it's a one-time event at the moment of salvation. That's what Peter's talking about here. And isn't it interesting that when, when Peter says, the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. Well, what figure is he talking about? The figure isn't the water in Noah's day, is it? The water wasn't the baptism that saved them. It was the boat. So even if we were looking at the picture, if, if the ark is the baptism, then, then it, 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 there's not even a one-to-one comparison with water baptism. Because it wasn't the water that saved Noah. It was the boat that saved Noah. The boat was the baptism. What, what, how, how does that work? Well, the minute that Noah well built the boat, I guess, but more specifically, every single person that stepped in that boat, that was the baptism, the, the moment of faith, the answer of a good conscience toward God that saw them saved from the judgment of the world. And that's salvation, folks. Salvation is God declaring that there's coming a day of judgment. That that day of judgment, we don't know when it is. And people pretend like it's not going to come because of the long-suffering of God that has waited and waited and waited. And they say, well, it hasn't come yet, so it probably never will. That's what they said in Noah's day as well. For 120 years, Noah was preaching righteousness. And they said, look at that crazy guy. For, for 80 years now, he's been saying the flood's coming. For, he's been building that boat. Yeah. Look how long it's been. But there came a day. Noah's preaching. He's preaching righteousness. He's saying, if you'll just get in the boat. And people say, there's that crazy Noah. And then the Bible says there came a day where Noah and his wife and his sons and daughters-in-law got on the boat and God closed the door. God closed that door. And it could not be opened. And the rain started to fall and people finally said, "Uh uh-oh. But by that point, it was too late. It was too late by the time the signs became inescapable. And the Bible says that we are on our way toward a judgment. For those that die outside of Christ, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment there's coming a day where the grace of God will give way to the wrath of God. And this is like the time of Noah where we are called to preach righteousness, to tell people that there's a way to be saved. And it's not through works. And it's not through going to church. And it's not through giving to charity. And it's not through being a good person and trying to impress God. God can't be impressed. God is holy. He, your, your works are not going to impress Him. 
It's our reasonable service. But see, they don't have to because there was a day where Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid your penalty. He built that ark. And He said, if anybody will step into the ark, you'll be saved from the judgment that is to come. If any man will put their full faith and trust in Me, believe on Me to be saved, then you'll be saved from the wrath that is to come. And that's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, believe the message of Christ, you will be saved. No amount of good works. No amount of personal effort. No amount of, of right things. No amount of church attendance or liturgical exercises will get you to heaven. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is the baptism of 1 Peter 3. The answer of a good conscience toward God. If there's someone in this room that has never made that decision, if you're sitting there and you say, you know, I've been trusting in something else. I've, I've, I've never understood this. I, I, I don't think I'm on my way to heaven. If I were to die right now, I don't know that I'm one that has the answer of a good conscience toward God that has put my faith and trust that has accepted the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, would you, would you make today the day? Would you make today the day that you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised Him from the dead? You say, Pastor, I don't fully understand. Would you come see me? And I'll open a Bible and walk you through how you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven. Biblically, what is water baptism? Water baptism is just an outward, it's an outward declaration of our commitment, a public declaration of our commitment to the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Question number two. Biblically, what does water baptism represent? What does water baptism represent? Well, water baptism is intended, as we said, to be a public display of our alignment with the message of the gospel. But more specifically, water baptism represents something. Your determination to die to yourself and your sin and to live in light of the expectations of God's Word. It's publicly declaring that you believe the Gospel and that you are ready to follow the Gospel. This doesn't mean you're, never vow- or you're vowing to never sin again. It doesn't mean that. We all sin. But it does mean that you are publicly committing yourself to living as a follower of Jesus Christ. I'll invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Excuse me, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Romans 6. As Paul describes our spiritual baptism, this is how he describes it. We talked about that Holy Spirit baptism. Look at how Paul describes that in verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The Scriptures tell us that the moment we are saved, we we experience that baptism of 1 Peter 3, the answer of a good conscience toward God. And at that moment of baptism, the Scriptures say that we are buried with Him by baptism. We associate with Christ and His message. We die to ourselves and are buried with Him, and then we are raised through this, this new creation, into this new creation, this newness of life that has the capacity and the desire to do what is right. 
Water baptism is a physical, a material representation of Jesus' death and resurrection. When you're placed under the water, you're demonstrating your faith that Jesus died. And you're also demonstrating your declaration that you have died with Him, that you believe that, that He died for your sin, that you could not earn your way to heaven, but that Jesus Christ did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. When you are raised up out of the water, that is a picture of His resurrection. That He didn't stay in the grave. Wouldn't it be a bummer if He stayed in the grave? I mean, baptisms would be a pretty unfortunate thing, right? Buried with Him. Glug, 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 glug. Okay, let's go eat. You know, it, it wouldn't be a very pleasant thing if, if, bapt- if He didn't rise from the dead. But, but baptism is a declaration that we believe He was buried, but that He rose again, that He's alive today, and that He lives in a resurrected body, that He lives eternally, and that because He lives, and we are associating with Him in His death, we are also going to be associated with Him in His resurrection. And that's the promise of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, if if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them which slept, and because He lives, so too will we. That's what baptism is intended to represent. Baptism is a physical sign, a physical declaration, a public declaration of the spiritual reality that now defines you as a follower of Jesus Christ. That I believe Christ died and rose again. That I have become a follower of Christ. I've taken up my cross. I have died to self. And I am fully persuaded that one day I will live again as well. Biblically, what is water baptism? Question two, biblically, what does water baptism represent? Question number three. Biblically, why do we water baptize? Why do we do it? Well, we've already answered that in part, or at least considered it in part. Back in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached that sermon that we were reading about, and he calls unto the people that were pricked in their hearts, that were convicted to, to accept the gospel, the word there that they use is repentance, not meaning sorrow over sin, but literally a change in mind about what it is that gets me to heaven. Hebrews chapter 6 describes it this way, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So I'm rejecting anything and everything else that can get me to heaven and I'm accepting that Jesus Christ alone can get me to heaven. That's repentance. And so he says, repent. And then he said, and then each of you that repents be water baptized. And four verses later, he says this, and I'm not going to have you turn, but four verses later in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and 41 Um, it says this, And with many other words did he, that's Peter, testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So on that day, about 3,000 people gladly received the gospel of Jesus Christ. These would have been Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover. Gladly received the gospel of Jesus Christ and submitted themselves, having received the gospel to baptism and were added to the church. And this concept, what we see here is that in the, old, uh, in the, in the New Testament, in the early church, the concept of baptism was very closely related to the local church. In fact, in the early church, so, so close were these concepts where literally 
um, baptism always happened. <laughs> if, if you accepted Jesus Christ, if you accepted the gospel, something you did was get baptized. So closely linked were they were, that, that, that if you got baptized, that was your initiation into the local church. That was when you were, if, you, if we could put it this way, joining the church. You got baptized and you joined the church. Now today, things are different, right? We're, we're, a, we're a culture where some of you drove 20, 30, 40 minutes, 90 minutes to get here this morning. And because you drove so far to get here, um, if, if you wanted me to baptize you, uh, it wouldn't necessarily mean that this is the church you're going to attend because we're a very mobile culture. That wasn't the way it was then. If, if, if you were... If you got integrated into a body of believers and they were, they were the, the only game in town um, and then you got baptized there, you were a part of them and, and you couldn't just go down the street to another church or you, you didn't come from afar because you wanted a certain person or a certain church or a certain whatever to baptize. It just didn't happen that way. So effectively getting baptized did assimilate you into the church. It was your inauguration into the church body. And we see various applications of this concept today among people that baptize after salvation. Now, around here, we've got several liturgical denominations who only infant baptize, and I'm not counting them. I know that there's that, there is that group. Um, I'm not really speaking toward them at this moment. But there are some churches that do see baptism as membership. And so if you get baptized, you're immediately inducted into the church as a member. And if you were to go to another church, they would expect you to get rebaptized into that church. There are some churches that, that believe that. We don't really see that in Scripture because the Scriptures don't talk about transfer of church membership and such. That's, that's um, organizational. That's not doctrinal. It's organizational, not doctrinal. There are some churches like ours that require baptism for church membership. That if you want to join us, uh, you don't have to be baptized at our church, but we need a testimony that you have been baptized after salvation, that you have followed the Lord in that step. And then we also ask that of people who are going to join us in um, communion around the Lord's table. I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later on in the message. And then there, there are some churches that hold the various views that you need to be baptized to join the church, but not to take, partake in communion or that baptism is something that you ought to do but don't really have to do. And, and there's a, a broad spectrum of churches, but um, we see almost consistently throughout churches that believe in baptism after salvation, as we believe the Bible teaches, um, that baptism plays an important role in validating among a, a body of believers a person's commitment to Christ and an important step in allowing them to become an active participant in the local body. So why do we baptize? Well, the first reason is because we see it exemplified in the early church. The early church did it. That's one of the reasons. But our motivations are much deeper than that. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul presents qualifications of salvation being by grace alone through faith alone. He says, and I've quoted it in part this morning, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. An inherent part of being a true believer is that you're not ashamed to confess Christ, to associate yourself with Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, to confess um, and thou shalt be saved, he's not giving a dogmatic statement that if you don't 
say with your mouth, I confess the Lord Jesus, you're not saved. We know that that's not how salvation works. It's an answer of a good conscience toward God. But what the text is attempting to describe here is that if a person is not willing to publicly associate themselves with Jesus Christ, if they are unwilling to publicly claim Christ, then they are likely not associated with him. In fact, Jesus Christ said this in Luke chapter 9, verse 26. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. The man who is ashamed of Christ, the man who refuses to associate himself with Christ publicly, is a man who is trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's trying to get all the benefits of living without Christ and not having to deal with the persecution or the shame of Christ, but at the same time receive the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gift of salvation. And on the authority of God's word, it doesn't work that way. If you aren't willing... Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying here, and please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that if you don't get baptized, that proves that you're unwilling to claim Christ. I'm not saying that. That's... That's saying that because A equals B, B uh, because A leads to B, B leads to A. It doesn't work that way. If a person is unwilling to, to claim loyalty to Jesus Christ in a public forum, he says, no, I will not. They, they deny Christ. Jesus says, whosoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of them. And baptism is a statement of association with Christ. However, that being said, as I mentioned, it's not to say that if you haven't been baptized, then you are ashamed, right? If you were to, we we think of what's happening in the Muslim world right now. And what the Muslims are attempting to do is to get Christians to deny Christ. And all throughout history, we've seen martyrs who have gone to their death rather than deny Christ. And the reason why they will do that is because the scriptures tell us that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you will be willing to bear his cross even unto death. And it is, it is exemplified and exemplary of those who are not true followers of Christ that when things get a little rough, they walk away. You've perhaps seen it in churches, maybe individuals in churches or maybe whole churches themselves who when culture, when society, when politics presses them on the doctrines of Christ, they're more than willing to give up the doctrines of Christ rather than suffer the persecution of the world. Those are people who are publicly ashamed of Christ. Those are churches who are publicly ashamed of Christ. And baptism is meant to be one of the ways in which we publicly associate ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's intended by God as a biblically ordained public statement of this association. And if the, if the reason why, now, as we follow this thinking forward, if the reason why a person is unwilling to be baptized 
is because they're ashamed of publicly identifying with Christ and with the gospel. They're ashamed of people knowing they're a Christian. They're ashamed of Christ. It's probably an indicator that there's something, it is an indicator that there's something deeply inconsistent with their relationship at very best. We in the Western world have lost much of the significance publicly of associating ourselves with Jesus Christ through baptism. But you know, in most of the world, baptism is significantly more significant, if I can um, say, state it that way. It's probably not eloquent, but maybe it gets the point across. I speak to missionaries, and as I do so, I learn of their culture. Bunahas in Cambodia. I was talking to him when he was here, and he told me, you know, he said it's not uncommon for, um, it's, and he said it's not even a problem. If a person gets saved, it's not a problem for them to go back to their family and say, hey, mom and dad, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior today. Mom and dad don't care. Okay, whatever, son. Whatever, daughter. That's fine. Until the day they choose to get baptized. And the day that they choose to get baptized, what that says to the family is, I am not just adding Jesus to my pantheon of gods. I am renouncing my former faith. I am renouncing my former beliefs and I am committing myself to Jesus Christ. And you know, in a great deal of the world, that is what baptism means. Baptism is a renouncing of what you learned before. And it's not so different up here in certain Lutheran and Catholic families, is it? That a Lutheran or a Catholic family might see the same thing. That if a person having been infant baptized, catechized, and brought into the church, then gets baptized again, they are seen as renouncing their former faith and going in a new direction. In fact, the Augsburg Confession damns all Anabaptists to hell for the heresy of rebaptizing people after salvation. And so we see throughout history, and this isn't just in pagan cultures, but we've lost some of that today. It's been muddied through, through doctrinal differences, but, but it's, still, it's still around today. And Jesus Christ himself tells us that, you know, sometimes the cost of following him is to lose some friends. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 to 39, I am come to set a man at variance against his father and his daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So imagine a culture like in the Jews' day where if you submitted yourself to the baptism of Jesus Christ, you'd lose your family. You maybe would lose your job. You would, the culture was so deeply ingrained in their religious beliefs that to disassociate yourself with them and to associate yourself with the commands of Jesus Christ would be to lose your livelihood or your family. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you've got to decide how important Jesus Christ is to you. And Jesus said, if you don't love me more than family, it doesn't mean you have to hate your family, but if you don't put me on a higher priority than them, if you don't put me on a higher priority than your job, you're not worthy of me. And that's really what baptism is intended to say. That God... Now, now Cameron's not going to lose his job or his family today. Thank the Lord his family believes and they'll be rejoicing with him. Thank the Lord that um, we're, we're in a culture that, that, that won't be put out by that. But at the same time, in Cameron's heart today, 
This ought to symbolize that if he were going to lose his family, that if he were going to lose his job for publicly identifying with Jesus Christ, he'd still go through with it. Because we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why do we baptize? Well, it's an early church example. Second, it's a test of association. It's to prove our association, our devotion to Jesus Christ. Third, why do we baptize? Well, because it's what the Bible tells us to do. We're going to obey. And this is probably the most important reason. Jesus in the Great Commission said this, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus said, Go into every nation, and His command is make disciples. And then He gave two parts to that command. First, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Second, teach them how to obey Me. So the first thing that you do is you get people who are ready to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you bring them to a place where they're ready to be discipled. And that's salvation. And then after salvation, he says, baptize them and then teach them. That's the Great Commission. Get them saved, baptize them, teach them. You know, the job isn't done when a person gets saved. And if, if, if we lead someone to Christ and then we just walk away, hang them out to dry, we have not fulfilled the Great Commission. We have not fulfilled the Great Commission. Go ye and make disciples, Jesus says, first baptizing them, then teaching them. That's the job that Christ commissioned us. So we're going to obey. If He says go and make disciples, then we're going to go and make disciples. He tells us to do it, so we'll do it. Fourth and final question this morning. Biblically, how should we water baptize? How should we water baptize? Two points under this. Final question. The first point is that we baptize believers only. We baptize believers only. This point is is very controversial in our area, the heavily Catholic and Lutheran area, because of infant baptism and that tradition. Biblically speaking, however, there is no biblical precedent for infant baptism. Every instance of baptism in in the Old Testament or New Testament it was reflected toward those who had accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ or accepted the message into which they were being baptized. It took a moment of volition to bring them to a place where they were ready to then associate with that message. In Acts chapter 8, we see the prototypical example of this. Philip. Philip is uh, one of the early church deacons and he is taken to meet a man called the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know his name. He's just a eunuch from Ethiopia. And he's in his, in his chariot and he's on his way back to Ethiopia and Philip runs up to him and the man is reading Isaiah 53. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I unless someone teaches me? Pretty important point. How can we understand the word unless we have someone to proclaim the word? How can I? So Philip says, well, may I tell you what this is about? He says, absolutely. So the scriptures tell us that Philip started at Isaiah 53 and he preached unto him Christ. And at the end of his teaching, they're rolling along on this chariot and um, the scriptures tell us in Acts 8.36, they went on their way, they came unto a certain water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said this, if thou believest with all thine heart, Thou mayest. 
And the eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Philip says, I'm not going to baptize you unless I have your assurances that you believe the message that I have given you. Belief is the condition for us to get out of this chariot. And he says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So the verse 38 says, And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. They went down into the water, the eunuch was baptized, and the passage serves as a prominent example of what the entire New Testament tells us, which is that baptism is designed as a step of obedience and an act of willing association with the gospel of Jesus Christ following my belief. An infant cannot volitionally choose to follow Christ. And thus he has no basis upon which to be baptized. Furthermore, infant baptism lends can, doesn't have to, but it can lend itself to false confidence, can't it? That a person says, well, I've been baptized into the church and this and that, so I must be okay with God because I've been baptized as an infant. When in fact, that's not a condition of being okay with God. A condition of being okay with God is when we accept Jesus Christ by grace through faith. When we recognize we're a sinner, that we can't get ourselves to heaven, that we humble ourselves before Christ and accept His free gift of salvation to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So pastor, what does this mean for those who were baptized as infants? Well, effectively it means nothing. It was a church tradition. It has no spiritual impact or bearing upon their lives. Now, does it have impact upon their relationship to their church? Yeah. It has impact on the relationship to their church. But does it have a biblical relation, uh, impact on their relationship to Christ? You can't find it in the Bible. You can't find it in the Bible. So the person who was baptized as an infant, it's not that, that's a, that, that, that puts them at a disadvantage you know, spiritually. It just didn't do anything for them. You still have to be saved by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. You still have to be in obedience to the Word of God, baptized and association with Christ following your salvation. You say, well, pastor, where did it come from then? Why, why infant baptism? Where did it come from? We can't go there today. We don't have enough time to go there today. But you can trace it through confusion between Israel's role and the church's role and confusion between the Israel's expectation of circumcision on the eighth day carrying over to infant baptism as circumcision inducted young people into the nation of Israel and the physical promises of Israel, because many of these denominations believe that the church has become Israel, they believe that children need to be inducted into the promises of the church. And so they baptize infants in the same way you would circumcise infants in Israel in order to induct them into the promises of the church, which promises are not found to the organizational church. Those promises are found to those who become a part of the church by accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior and thus becoming a part of the universal church, the body of Christ. So there's a confusion there. And it's a theological confusion. And it, so, so there is a reason. It's not that they're just willy-nilly saying, let's just do this. There's a reason. It's just not founded in proper interpretation of Scripture. And this is why we, we see infant baptism as a dangerous practice and one that we don't do um, because it doesn't have any foundation in the Bible and it can confuse. And it can give a false confidence that that infant baptism somehow makes me right with God. So 
biblically, how should we baptize? Number one, we baptize believers. We wait until a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, we baptize by immersion, which simply means that we put someone completely underwater and bring them back up. And this is opposed to, say, a sprinkling or um, some other minimal um, form of baptism. And, and the reason why is, is first, the biblical record demonstrates this. In the, in the account of the Ethiopian eunuch that we just talked about, they found a body of water and the scriptures say they went down and they went into the water. And uh, if you continue reading the passage, it would say Philip brought him out. Clearly he went under. Jesus, when he was baptized, the scriptures say that, that John baptized him and as he came out of the water, the spirit descended like a dove. In, in every case that we see baptism, we see it exemplified that they looked for a body of water and that they immersed the person. So we do it because that's what the scriptures tell us. But, but doesn't it make sense? I mean, can you really, is there really a, a picture of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in this or this? There's not. Uh, or, or, or pouring water over someone. What, the picture, we've already talked about the picture, right? Buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. The picture is of a burial and of a resurrection. Now, we, we're not going to bury someone under dirt. So how, how do we accomplish this picture? Well, God has ordained a way. I mean, just like if Jesus had never risen, if we were going to try to accomplish the picture with dirt, we, we'd, we'd have some problems. But water gives a great opportunity for this because you completely immerse the person in something that covers them, but then you bring them back out of it. Death, burial, resurrection. The picture is complete when we baptize through immersion. The, the symbol is completely lost if we sprinkle or pour or whatever the case may be. And so we baptize by immersion. We baptize only believers. We do this because this is what the Bible says. We do this because this is what fulfills the picture that Christ is intending for us to fulfill. Now we've covered much today. It's been a, it's been a, a, a bit of a grind this morning, a lot of material. I hope it's been helpful to you. In just a little while, we're going to observe this ordinance of baptism. In just a little while, we're going to rejoice over this together. It's not one to be taken lightly. It's extremely well-founded biblically. It's a command of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an important step in a believer's life. And it is a serious step. But it's a step of rejoicing. Because on this day, we rejoice with someone who has chosen to publicly identify himself with Jesus Christ and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are rejoicing over someone who is um, publicly declaring his love for the Lord and for the gospel. And that's worth rejoicing over together. So as we go from here today, as we rejoice in this, this baptism that is to come, may it not just be a time of rejoicing, but also a, a remembrance to you. When, when we observe Cameron go down into the water and come out of the water and we think of everything that it, it symbolizes, may I encourage you to remember your own salvation. To remember that you too, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, have died to self and are expected to live to Christ. And to ask those questions of yourself. Are you doing that today? Are you living dead to self? 
Do you wake up in the morning and say, Never, not my will, but thy will be done? Or is the morning, okay, how can I get my own today? What am I going to do to do what I want today? Baptism is intended to remind us that that's not how we're to live. And may God help us to remember that in our time together after this today. Let's pray together.